Hey, this is Chris, and welcome to the Sausage of Science. This is a special summer edition. Kara is not with me today. She is busy with repair people, fixing a leak in her house. And technically, we're on vacation. Kara and I are taking the month off and getting some other work done. She's working on grants for her future research, and I am finishing up a book. But rather than leave you with no sausage of science for the summer, we're pulling a few of our favorite episodes by people who themselves also have books out. Some of them, like today's guest, Dr. Leslie Joe Weaver, we talked to them a little bit about their book when we first did their interview. But I had the idea following Ezra Klein when he and his podcast self-promoted his own book by reading chapters from it that we should have the folks who we interview read a little bit from the books they're promoting to give you a sense of what you're missing and maybe lead you to buy their book or download it from Audible or go to the library. So today, we're going to reshare our interview from a few years ago with Joe Weaver, who used to be a biocultural medical anthropologist with me at the University of Alabama and now is at Oregon. And she is in the global health program there doing biocultural medical anthropology. And she's going to read a little bit from the introduction to her book. And then we'll follow that with a rerun of her interview from a few years ago. She's also, I should know, besides being a close personal friend of ours, so someone we, a friend of the pod as it, as it were, she also is a podcaster with Jim Binden and Eric Peterson. They have the Speaking of Race podcast, which is itself an amazing podcast for which they do some pretty intensive scholarship, uh, handcrafting each and every episode um, on the history of the race concept as a as a science concept. All right, so without further ado, I give you Joe Weaver reading from her book, Sugar Intention. Chapter one, opening a window on diabetes experience. Maya had seen more suffering in her 35 years than many women do in a lifetime. Her husband had passed away suddenly five years earlier from an aneurysm, leaving her a widow at age 30 with two young children. She and her husband had shared a house in a poor, congested area of Delhi with her parents-in-law, and after his death, she had no choice but to continue living with them. The house was located down an alley lined on either side by open gutters, where sewage and street dogs ran free. Because the alley was so narrow, it was only accessible by bicycle or on foot. As I walked on, flies buzzed, and the alley darkened to an eerie midday dusk, lit only by a thin sliver of sky above. It then ended at the ground floor apartment where Maya, her children, and her in-laws lived. The in-laws owned the building and made their only income by renting the upper floors. I stepped gingerly around bicycles and a motorcycle crowded around the front doorway, then ducked my head as I passed through. Faded pictures of Hindu gods and goddesses, draped with dusty, dried garlands of marigolds, decorated the blue walls. Maya motioned for me to sit on the cot-turned sofa that was the main piece of furniture in the living room, then returned with a tray holding a glass of cold water. She settled herself onto a low stool facing me. Although I was very uncomfortable with this arrangement, which seated me both symbolically and physically above her, she insisted. I had met Maya at a diabetes clinic several weeks earlier, where she was accompanying her diabetic mother-in-law for a routine checkup. 
Assuming that Maya herself didn't have diabetes because she looked so young, I asked if she might be willing to talk to me as a non-diabetic woman about her everyday life. To my surprise, she told me she was pre-diabetic. She had elevated blood sugar that would turn into diabetes if she didn't change her diet and begin taking medication. Maya had received this diagnosis four and a half years before, just after her husband's untimely death. But she hadn't been checked by the doctor on the day we met, nor for any diabetes-related care since that initial diagnosis. When I asked why, she said it would cost her in-laws extra money, which they would hold against her. Besides, they'd probably suspect her of malingering to get out of household chores. She promised me, however, that she would see him, quote, in another two or three days. Maya had had to ask permission from her father-in-law for me to visit her house that day. A moment after I arrived and sat down, her mother-in-law appeared in a doorway. Maya immediately covered her head with her dupatta as a sign of deference. I cheerfully introduced myself in Hindi and explained that I was visiting with Maya because I wanted to learn more about her health. The mother-in-law did not smile back and barely responded, but hovered with her arms crossed as if to monitor what Maya was telling me. The tension was palpable. Maya knew she was an unlikely candidate for a pre-diabetes diagnosis based on her weight, age, and family history, so she looked elsewhere for explanations of her illness. She figured that the shock of her husband's sudden death and the stress of dealing with her in-laws alone thereafter might have done it. Quote, nobody had it in my family. I just had a lot of tension at that time. That's why I got sugar, she said. When her mother-in-law left the room again, she continued in a lowered voice, leaning toward me. Quote, family tension. I'll tell you now. My husband passed away five years ago. You're asking me, so as a friend, I'm telling you this. My mother-in-law was here, so... The tension, like you said, happens to me sometimes, but for the children, I try to adjust, end quote. My overall impression was that something was profoundly wrong with Maya, and it all seemed to center on her in-laws. Maya had visible bruises on her forearms in the shape of fingerprints, but she laughed nervously, looked away, and said no when I asked in a hushed voice if she was being physically abused. The dark circles under her eyes hinted at tiredness or perhaps anemia. She reported little appetite and often had trouble getting up in the morning because she felt faint and had severe headaches. She said she was tormented by guilt because her husband had died when she was away visiting her mother, so she wasn't with him at the time. The small household offered no sisters-in-law or other peer family members with whom Maya might have commiserated about this or any of her other troubles. There was also no one to share the household work, and Maya's mother-in-law expected her to do it all. Perhaps Maya's relationship with her in-laws had never been particularly good. Mothers and daughters-in-law often conflict in North India's patrilocal family system, where a young woman typically moves in with her husband and his parents after the wedding. The younger woman coming into the household is often expected to serve her mother-in-law and manage the household under her direction, and this can be difficult for both parties. Although she didn't move in with them until after her first menstruation, Maya was married into the family at the age of seven. She talked very little about the dynamics of her marital relationship, but her limited remarks suggested the marriage had been reasonably happy. Her husband protected her and supported her financially, and together they had two children whom they both cherished. Why did Maya now stay in this unpleasant and possibly abusive living situation? As a lower middle class woman, she had no education that would enable her to get a job. Her father had already died, 
and her own impoverished mother would be unable to support her and her two children if she moved out of her in-law's home. It would have been financially burdensome and socially inappropriate for her to return to her natal family. Typically, women in her situation don't elect to live alone. Moreover, if she did so, she would likely lose any claim she might have had to her husband's inheritance. So she stayed and kept house for her in-laws, essentially bartering her labor for her children's future security. Maya took charge of all the meal preparation and household cleaning, doing the tasks the way her mother-in-law expected. Although Maya cooked, her mother-in-law set the menu and did the shopping. Given these responsibilities and household dynamics, Maya did very little to manage her health. Her two children didn't know she had prediabetes, and she said she avoided telling people. Last time she went to her general doctor for a non-diabetes-related concern, she purposefully didn't take with her the lab reports that diagnosed her as pre-diabetic because she was afraid that he might put her on insulin injections. She, like many women in my study, dreaded this possibility because she believed that insulin was habit-forming and didn't like the idea of injecting herself. Maya said she went on a daily walk, but she was quick to clarify that she did this more to lift her mood than for her physical health. When I visited her home that day, Maya, Maya was participating in the Hindu Navratri, or nine-night, fast, during which she only consumed sweetened chai, tea, fruit, and milk by day, and a small dish of pumpkin with yogurt in the evening. This was not agreeing with her. Quote, the thing is, I'm feeling very weak these days. The dizziness I was telling you about, it's been happening to me in between. I'm okay today, but the day before yesterday, I was dizzy. End quote. Generally, junior women in the household perform fasts and religious observances on behalf of the family, so this might have been one reason why Maya persisted, despite the fact that her symptoms had worsened. This book is about the lives of a group of women with type 2 diabetes, or sugar, as they called it colloquially, who live in India's capital, New Delhi. Most of the women with whom I worked were like Maya. They were situated somewhere in the nebulous contours of India's urban middle class or lower middle class. They were Hindu in their religious orientation, and they didn't work outside the home. Unlike Maya, most had a high school education or more, and had been living with diabetes for a long time, eight years on average. But there were quite a few who were still in the process of adjusting to a new diagnosis, and a few who were diagnosed only when I tested their blood sugar and found it abnormally high. I conducted the research for this book between 2009 and 2012 with a follow-up in 2016. In all, I worked with over 180 women with diabetes, but only a subgroup of women with whom I did in-depth ethnographic work appear in this book. I also worked with about 100 women without diabetes who appear primarily in Chapter 4 as a comparison group in my discussion of mental health. Prior to the start of my formal research in 2009, I'd spent time between 2001 and 2008 studying Hindi and working in North India. The contextual background that informed my research came from this period. Even the realization that type 2 diabetes was a major health concern came not from the design of the research itself, but from having lived and worked in India previously. <clears throat> type 2 diabetes is a chronic disease resulting from either a low level of insulin a hormone secreted by the pancreas that regulates blood sugar, or from the body's reduced response to the insulin that's secreted by the pancreas. The condition impairs the body's ability to process the carbohydrates contained in food. 
As a result, people with diabetes often have too much or too little sugar in their blood. Over time, organs receiving this blood become damaged, as does the circulatory system. This is one reason why diabetes is so serious. All the body's systems come into contact with blood, and therefore all of the body's systems are at risk of damage from blood with abnormal sugar levels. Precise management of diabetes requires intensive and continuous self-care, and most women in my study, like Maya, did not do this. Studying how and why women made choices about prioritizing diabetes, or not, ended up teaching me all kinds of things about how women in this context order the broader priorities in their lives. I take as an analytic starting point the observation that in this cultural context, women like Maya are strongly socialized toward the care of others. This creates a paradox for the self-care demands of diabetes. Throughout the book, I examine questions such as, what do women in a situation like Maya's do when they get diabetes? Whose well-being gets prioritized? What does care look like when women give it to their families and when they enact it for themselves? What if self-care isn't a relevant category at all for women like Maya? Such questions about how women in North India negotiate self and other care are especially timely given current public debates around women's changing economic and social positions in the country, and about their rights and roles in public spaces. Just after this research took place in 2012, the city of New Delhi acquired a central geographic and ideological position in these debates, when a 23-year-old female physiotherapy intern, known pseudonymously as Nirbhaya, was brutally gang-raped and murdered on a moving off-duty public bus when she was out late one evening with a male friend. Indian law prohibits public media from reporting the names of rape victims because rape is so highly stigmatizing. Nirbhaya means fearless in Hindi and was a moniker chosen specifically to restore dignity to the woman violated by this crime. Mohan Rao Bhagwat, the head of the conservative Hindu nationalist group Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, or RSS, publicly commented that, quote, such crimes hardly take place in Bharat, but occur frequently in India, end quote. By this, he meant that sexual violence against women is not part of Bharat, the ancient Sanskrit word for India, the traditional, principled, idyllic, and notably Hindu nation. But rather, it's a product of the modern, corrupt India. Women's supposedly provocative behavior, such as wearing titillating Western-style clothing, being out at night, or worse yet, being out at night with men who are not their relatives, as Nirbhaya was, is offered here as evidence of India's moral disintegration. Nirbhaya's death and the victim-blaming response to it, from people like Bhagwat, led to massive protests against the government's inability, or some said unwillingness, to provide adequate public safety for women and to respond appropriately to sexual violence. New Delhi was at the center of these protests, which eventually spread nationwide. Just before the Nirbhaya case, New Delhi had hosted its first slut walk, a protest march that was part of an ongoing transnational movement to end rape culture. But in 2014, another widely covered spate of sexual crimes against Delhi women involving five rapes in under 24 hours led newspaper to dub New Delhi India's rape capital. At the core, these public discussions in urban India reflect broader discomfort with new visions of women's gendered positions that straddle two very different visions of the nation. The Nirbhaya protests and the accompanying media and lay discussions 
questioned the prevailing idea that women can only be safe in India if they follow religious and socially conservative norms that keep them confined to the domestic sphere. Although none of the women with whom I worked were part of the slut walk, or anywhere near it, in fact, since that kind of activity was largely the, the purview of the liberal elite intelligentsia who were not part of my research group. Many women in my study also described feelings if they were caught between the two Indias that Bhagwat so problematically referenced. For them, the conflict was less often about going out at night safely, and more often about the degree to which they could or should maintain fidelity to domestic norms of service enshrined in ideas about Parat. Women experienced internal conflict as well as external criticism if they were unable to uphold what was perceived to be the traditional woman's responsibility of caring for others in the domestic sphere. Most of these women believed other care activities to be of the utmost importance. And, like Maya, during the Navratri fast, they went to great lengths to uphold them to whatever extent they could. Given this rather fraught cultural context around women's changing roles in urban Indian spaces, type 2 diabetes is a compelling way to think about gender, health, care, and modernity. Self-care has important gendered inflections all over the world, but perhaps especially in India, where cultural forms and ancient Vedic texts have historically emphasized an ideology of feminine virtue stemming directly from women's domestic care of others. Diabetes is a point of entry for exploring larger questions about how women grapple with, adapt to, and modify the norms that orient them towards self-sacrifice. These questions mirror larger debates going on in India right now about how women ought to be acting as public citizens and domestic managers. Maya's case illustrates several additional themes that will be carried throughout the coming chapters. First, she, and every other woman in this book, is living at the intersection of complex historical and political trajectories that have created the nebulous entity that is modern India, however we might define that. Maya and her family operate within cultural, socioeconomic, and political boundaries that are largely not of their own making, but that nevertheless insinuate themselves into even the most intimate of family spaces. In Chapter 2, I set the stage for this analysis by introducing readers to some of the features that define, quote, modern India. In Chapter 3, I move into a discussion of how structural, social, and personal features of women's lives differentially shape their experiences with diabetes. Today, biomedical diabetes control in India is intertwined with Western liberal philosophies of personhood that emphasize self-improvement and the labor theory of human value. Work is tied perversely to both wellness and reward. This association remains despite the fact that the amount of work one puts into diabetes management does not necessarily correspond to health outcomes. Instead, structural and interpersonal factors can tip the balance of well-being in one way or the other. Maya was young, uneducated, widowed, and had no independent source of income. Although these conditions were not her fault, in the sense that they somehow resulted from her personal choices. They constrained her life chances significantly. They also put her directly in harm's way regarding her prediabetes. It takes little stretch of the imagination to envision how her illness would progress unless something changed in her life, and it was certainly already impacting how she felt from day to day. This manner of exploring the structural and personal determinants of women's well-being is the second theme of the book and the focus of chapter 3. A third theme of the book is how women narratively associate hardships in life, or tension, as Maya called it, with chronic disease. 
Maya described her difficult relationship with her in-laws as full of tension. As Maya did, women frequently use the English word tension to talk about all kinds of life stresses, not just those associated with illness. Women often told me that they first got diabetes during a period of tension in their lives, such as the death or illness of a loved one. Anthropologists working in Mexico, the United States, and India have similarly found that people often perceive their diabetes as starting during a time of great distress. But the use of the expression tension as a way to describe that stress is uniquely South Asian. Many women told me that diabetes also caused tension by placing extra demands on their already busy lives, which were filled by childcare, household, cleaning, cooking, caring of elderly parents-in-law, and sometimes a career too. Tension, therefore, was both cause and effect, connected within a biosocial feedback loop of diabetes and stress. I address this and more in Chapter 4. A fourth key theme illustrated in Maya's experience is how family duty and honor can work to women's advantage and simultaneously to their detriment in North India. Not everyone lives in a multi-generational family like Maya, and even those who do often have more autonomy than she did. Nevertheless, every woman with whom I worked struggled in some way to manage the imperatives of self-care that diabetes introduced into their lives, along with the social expectations that they care for others. In Chapter 5, I describe how women with diabetes grapple with notions of self-care and self-sacrifice in their families. And in Chapter 6, I focus on women who are living well with diabetes. These chapters address what are the key priorities in women's lives and call into question what living well actually means in the context of diabetes and urban North Indian domestic worlds. As I illustrate throughout the course of this book, Women were not uncritical of their role conflicts and often managed to develop creative ways of leveraging their autonomy to accomplish the things most important to them, whether or not they involved labor devoted to diabetes self-management. At first glance, many women in this book seem to be defying the logic of self-care their physicians and family members expect of them because they engage in supposedly self-sabotaging activities, like eating foods they've been told to avoid. Yet, a closer look at each woman's experience reveals how they strategically position themselves as subjects worthy of care, though perhaps not the forms of care their physicians and family members recognize as valid. This might be said, even to some extent, of Maya, whose moral management of her family through activities like fasting could be read as an exercise of agency and an exercise of sacrifice. This matters because it becomes all too easy to pass judgment on the sensibility of another person's actions when they're taken out of context. For instance, it would be easy to vilify Maya's mother-in-law if one didn't understand that the mother-in-law herself had probably suffered at the hands of an overbearing mother-in-law several decades prior, and that Maya's in-laws were in the complicated position of needing her to keep the household running and provide later life care, while also having to manage the economic liability that she and her, her children created for them. Attention to the structures shaping Maya's and others' lives reveals how global processes, such as economic development and the changes in values and norms that come along with it, trickle down into the interstices of ordinary people's lives. What might Maya's life situation look like if she had had more opportunity to be educated, or if she and her husband had decided to establish a nuclear family household separate from his parents, as young couples are increasingly choosing to do in urban India? Although it is about diabetes, this book is not just about diabetes. As a point of entry into a whole social world, women's experiences with diabetes can tell us about family life, 
individual and group values, cultural norms, expectations, conflicts facing urban Indian women in the 21st century, and much more. They give us windows into the lives of others, one of the fundamental goals of anthropology as a discipline. In this way, the question, what does it mean to be a woman with a chronic disease in urban India, resonates far beyond its immediate implications for health, teaching us about gender, family, global development, and what matters from day to day in the lives of a large portion of the world. All right. So on the podcast today, along with Kara, who's one of my best friends in the world, is one of my other best friends in the world, Joe Weaver. Hey! Who, until like a week ago, was two offices down from me, and I'm not bitter. It's not at all. In Oregon. Let's see. He does wish you well, Joe. Uh, yes, I do. And I wish you well, Chris. Happy birthday. Thank you. So Joe is one of the co-hosts of another podcast called Speaking of Race. They started off around the same time as us, but they have like 700 episodes and they are hilarious and extremely articulate and very, very, very informative. And I want to ask Joe in a few minutes about her experience with that, because I know it came about when she took on teaching the race class here at the University of Alabama. Um, I want to ask Joe about her new job. She's got a book coming out. That I want to ask her about. And as with Kara, we know I actually learn what my friends do for work when we interview them on podcasts because the rest of the time we talk about Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And so welcome, Joe. Thanks. It's good to be here. Where but, are you actually? I'm in Eugene, Oregon. So you're already in Oregon. Okay. I wasn't sure if you had moved yet. Joe spent a whole evening trying to figure out how to pick the lock to the pod and then ended up just with wire cutters cutting the master lock to get her shit out and it's true it's true so we're doing this in stages so i'm here by myself dave has the kids camping oh fun took the key to the pod up mount rainier wow so tell us about the new job what department you're in what you're going to be doing all that good stuff so i'm an assistant professor of international studies and part of what i was hired to do here is to help develop a new global health focus in the international studies department that has existed for about a year and is incredibly popular. So that's really exciting. They have more students wanting to be part of this concentration than they have manpower to deal with. And that's really awesome. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a great problem to have. So I will be, I'll I'll actually be teaching many, if not all of the same topics that I have always been teaching. So cultural anthropology, methods, topical stuff on mental health and medical anthropology, and the course on on race and human variation, actually, I'm going to be teaching this fall. So in terms of my everyday, what I'm teaching and what I'm researching, things aren't going to change too much, but um, it's cool to be in an interdisciplinary department with lots and lots of other anthropologists and sociologists and historians and economists and geographers and stuff like that. So I know you're going to be working with Josh Snodgrass up there in some Mm -hmm. respect. He's in the anthropology department. You have a powerhouse department and I guess network for people who'd be listening to this, right? So Josh is up there. Uh, I know they just hired Zachary um, who's a member of HBA. Who else is up there? Well, your husband, David. So so Um, Joe and David both left our department and David Meek is a rock star anthropologist as well. Kristen Yaris, who is somebody that I've worked very closely with, is here. She works on mental health stuff in um, mostly in Mexico, but in other parts of Latin America as well. And she's 
like a psychological anthropologist. Another anthropologist, biological anthropologist at Oregon is Kristen Sterner. She's pretty awesome. She does a lot with like molecular anthropology stuff. She has a really fantastic lab. Nelson Tang is also there. And then on the cultural side, there's all kinds of awesome people too. So it's, it's a pretty cool program. Um, uh, will you be taking on grad students at any point in time or things like that, postdocs that you might want to intrigue people with? Yeah. So remember, I'm in international studies. I was just talking about the anthro department, but I have a sort of partial appointment in anthropology that allows me to take on master's and doctoral students. We also have a master's program in international studies with a focus in, you know, sort of global health and humanitarian stuff. Well, there you go, guys. If you want to work with Joe Weaver, take a look at Oregon's program. Yeah. Okay. So now after putting all the pressure on you to tell us about the where you just moved and have had a chance to even unpack into. You have a book coming out. You did shit ton of work in India. Mm-hmm. What's yeah, your book so about? I work in, in two parts of the world, primarily in India and also in Brazil. But I'm really kind of trained as a South Asian anthropologist. So India is where I've spent the most time. My doctoral research was about coping and mental health and social life and gender stuff among women who have diabetes in New Delhi. And that's what the book is about. The book is called Sugar Intention. It's coming out this fall with Rutgers University Press and hopefully will be out in time for the AAA. Didn't I come up with that title? No. Didn't I? <laughs> yes. You did. No, no, no. That's not fair. You, you definitely suggested elements of that title. I think you suggested sugar. Yes. So, yes. yes, you came up with half of that title. Well done, Chris. I came up with a word that is very common. <laughs> So it's sugar intention, colon, diabetes and gender in modern India. Hmm. <laughs> Joe and I also like one of the things I should say, aside from we talked about our, our weightlifting together, the fact that she was down in office, we also have published together. And, and that probably in large part came about because we read each other's work and Joe is like one of the best editors I've ever read. So she does so much great editing. We end up going like, Joe, you, you practically helped us rewrite this. You should be a co-author. <laughs> that's, that's my strategy for just glomming onto other people's work. I'm it just works. Kidding. It does work. No, it was fun. I like doing that with you. And we also, so we've only published one paper together. Isn't that right? Yeah, we did that. I think I th- we might have blogged together. I can't remember. But published one paper together. We've written others. And then I've read some of your work. And I send you all of my work at this point because you're a good editor. It is my pleasure. And we, oh, we organized that AAA session once too. Yes. About fieldwork issues. So maybe we should talk about fieldwork now. Yeah, we should. So after I did that doctoral project, my second big research project was in Brazil. And the reason it was in Brazil is because I was living in Brazil anyway. Because <laughs> my partner, David, is an anthropologist who also works in Brazil. And I, so I had this cool opportunity to live there for a year in this rural community where no one speaks any English at all, with absolutely no research agenda. In fact, I didn't even plan to do any work there. And then after I'd been there for a year, I was like, oh, this place is, you know, I've been sort of percolating ideas. And a couple colleagues and I got funding for a comparative global project that compares my research site in Brazil with my colleague Bonnie Kaiser's site in Haiti and my other colleague Craig Hadley's site in Ethiopia. And that project looks at food insecurity and mental health. So it's more of a nutritional anthropology project, a little bit more than the diabetes one was because, of course, diabetes has to do with nutrition, but I didn't do a lot of nutritional biomarkers, not much at all, actually, in the diabetes work. Anyway, so that's Brazil. So now my third major project, that project is done, or almost done. It's been about five years. I'm starting a new project back in India, and that's what I was there doing this summer. And it's really awesome to return to 
a place that I've spent lots and lots of time, but I'm in a very different part of India now than I used to be. So I've mostly worked in North India, but I ended up with this project sort of by coincidence in South India. And so this is going to be the first time that I'm working in a place where I don't speak the language mm-hmm. and that has its own set of challenges, although I am learning Kannada. And it's also one of the first times that I've worked by partnering with local NGO or it's a public health organization called um, the Public Health Research Institute of India. It's in Mysore, India. And this is the first time I've done it. You know, I've always sort of done like the anthropologists with the knapsack setting up their own Malinowski like long-term field site. And it's a totally different and really cool experience to be partnering with an organization that is already doing this kind of work. So you're working with different people? Or are you working with the same people you, you worked with before? I'm working with a totally new group of people. So I came across this group of people two years ago when I was, I was in India two years ago just for like a reconnaissance mission to sort of investigate potential field sites for a new project because I knew that once the Brazil project wrapped, I was going to want to return to India. And so, you know, it was like a six-week, I wouldn't even call it pilot research. It was really just like running around, connecting with people that I've worked with in the past and also with new people and sort of exploring possibilities. So I, I was in Mysore in Karnataka, which is where I ended up for this research. And I, I was just like Googling around and I found this organization. It turns out that it's run by a professor of epidemiology in the U.S. who was born and raised in Mysore named Purnima Madhavanan. She's at Florida International right now. And the organization was started as part of her doctoral research, which looked at delivery of prenatal and reproductive health care to rural women in the areas around Mysore town. So as part of her doctoral work, she set up healthcare delivery for this pretty large catchment area of rural women. And when her doctoral research ended, she was like, I really don't feel like it's ethical to end the care provision that we've been giving these people. So she set up this NGO called the Public Health Research Institute of India. This was about 10 more than 10 years ago now. And I think it's just a wonderful example of an institution where everything has been done right. And that's great to see because given my background in public health and in global health, I'm often teaching about and critiquing, you know, sort of what goes wrong with international aid and international development. And it's so cool to see an organization where they're doing everything right. Mm. Can you give an example of what they're doing right as opposed to things that you've seen done wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it helps, you know, the, the fact that the director is from the area originally. But the organization is run by women and for women, and it employs only local women. So they have a staff of about 13 or 14 women. And when they first, she and her husband, who's American, when they first started this NGO, they decided they would hire people with masters in social work, which is as close as most people get in India to having master's degrees in social science stuff. But they found out pretty quickly when they hired those folks that these were mostly people from kind of privileged background who really didn't know how to talk to the underprivileged women with whom they were working, right? And so they were they were well-meaning kids for for sure, but kids who come from sort of well-to-do backgrounds. So that didn't work. And so what they did was they threw out that idea and they put an ad in the local newspaper saying that they wanted to hire women who like to talk to other women. Hmm. And that was the only qualification that they listed. So what that meant was they got this incredible spread of women from various educational backgrounds, caste backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and class backgrounds, none of whom had any formal social science research training. And they trained everybody there from the ground up. And so this group of people is just incredibly skilled at all kinds of interview techniques, like cognitive interviewing included. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, medical case history stuff, but also the kind of stuff I was there doing, which I haven't even told you about yet. You know, it was amazing. So 
what's also really fantastic is that this group of people is like kind of like a family. Everyone who works there has been there forever. They all truly get along and love each other. And it's just a really wonderful work environment to be in. It's wonderful for them because it makes everybody happy. And that trickles down into their work because everyone's so happy to be there doing the work they do. And so it was just incredible to be a part of that this summer. And it felt wonderful to, to be part of an organization that's really doing it right. That's awesome. And mm-hmm. and what, what's striking to me about that is one of the things that we, we frequently struggle with is teaching students how to interact. It's hard to teach the social skills that one of those intangibles that you're like either, sometimes we say there you got it or you don't. We I think we try to teach it to, to varying degrees, but there's no good formula. And often you have to bring them along and show them, watch them, give them feedback. And it, it mm-hmm. takes as much or more time than teaching the, the theory and some of the other elements. So that's really fascinating. And yeah. to me, it's also the power of a simple idea. And so much of what all of our work boils down to is just basic talking to people and enjoying talking and enjoying listening. And that can so easily be tossed out with all of the details and, you know, learning the interview skills and whatever skills else you have to learn. But when it gets down to basics, it's the talking and listening that's so key. And so that's brilliant of the people who run this NGO to have boiled it down to, right? Do you enjoy talking to other women? And, you know, using that as the foundation is just wonderful. Not to cut you off, I want to reinforce this point because I've had this same conversation three or four times recently, and it goes to my own field experience, which I know Joe and I have talked about, Kara, you and I have probably talked about it before as well. But when we're on grants or we're on, I mean, we're Americans. So we have like schedules and we have deadlines and we have priorities. So we tend to rush in and try to get things done. And I know Joe and I talked about this when we were writing about how some of the agencies who go in to do work are on a timeline and they will go and push locals to give them data or tell them things. And that pushiness doesn't go over well. And the trick is learning to hang and sit and talk and develop a rapport. And I just had this reinforced this summer because I was at Winter Grin in New York and spent like four hours there just shooting the breeze and had the greatest time. And I was just like thinking it was going to be an hour meeting and how important it was just to sit and hang out and talk to people to develop that that relationship. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think you guys are right. I think I think those skills can be taught of sort of being able to sit and talk with people. But you know, it often ends up, I think, in teaching being a chicken or egg sort of phenomenon, like, or maybe that's not what I mean to say two sides of a coin phenomenon. I don't know. Insert insert metaphor here. Um, (laughs) I often have students who are either drawn to anthropology because they really like talking to people and then they have to learn the the methods or they're really drawn to the methods and then have to learn how to talk to people. Those are the ones I get. Both of them can be taught, but I think it's, you know, I came to anthropology because I like to talk to people. I was a bench scientist working in a mouse lab and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need people. (laughs) It's also, of course, I'm going to bring it back to current political climate because how can you not these days? Do it. The importance of dialogue, just period, because it's gotten so easy right now when somebody disagrees with you to just shut them down with a one-liner or just a couple of words and how so much of what anthropology boils down to is dialogue. And the moment we shut people down because we disagree with them, we stop doing our work and we stop doing it well. Uh, So I think that's, it's huge. And these are skills that anthropology can teach that students need to have at every level and every single field. So there you go, world. Have all undergraduates take anthropology. Yes. 
Seriously. <laughs> It'll solve all the world's ills, clearly. <laughs> it will. That's true. Anyway, we've gotten far off as we often do. Do you want to tell us about your actual work that you're doing in India? We've heard about the team, but uh, tell us about the fun science going on. Yeah. So, you know, my, my prior work in India was on, as I said earlier, diabetes and mental health. And the mental health part of that project was a little bit of a surprise. Like I sort of, I, I envisioned before I did that work that I might run into some stuff around mental health, but I wasn't really focusing on the mental health part. I was coming into it thinking of myself as a medical anthropologist who studies chronic diseases and maybe there'll be a little mental health stuff around along the way. And it kind of ended up being the opposite. So I was working with women who had diabetes. So of course the chronic disease part was there. The part that was that women wanted to talk about most and that I actually found the most kind of compelling was wasn't actually the disease itself. It was more of the all, all the stuff around it, including mental health. And I think that more so than my focus on chronic disease, the mental health focus of my work is the one that has gotten the most response from both academic and non-academic communities. And it's also the thread that ties together my two major projects, the Brazil one and the India one. Mental health is kind of the common denominator in both of those projects. So with that in mind, the purpose of this new work is to delve deeper into the mental health stuff that I just scratched the surface of in my first research in India, my first big project. And so this is looking at women's mental health, not in the context of chronic disease necessarily. And that I'm taking a really, really broad approach to it because this is the first time that I've designed a study that is explicitly focused almost, I wouldn't say exclusively because anthropologists are holistic after all, but that is principled completely around mental health stuff. So the purpose of this project this summer was simply to start to get a sense of the ways in which women talk about stress and distress in the local language, which is Kannada, and to sort of begin to figure out what that looks like for women. So what are the major causes of it that they talk about? How do they conceive of it? What vocabulary do they use? How do they cope with it? How, how would a woman know when her stress had become more than sort of normal and that she might need to seek some kind of treatment, whether that's biomedical or otherwise? And so that was what I did. I just did these 30 in-depth interviews with a really broad group of women selected through snowball sampling for the most part in the town of Mysore, looking at all that sort of baseline stuff around mental health. Do you find a certain level of stigma in the population working with to talk about mental health even? Yes. You know it's a huge issue in the U.S. and so I'm always curious how other cultures address it. Absolutely. So I spent a lot of time talking this summer about stigma with, and I also spent a fair amount of time with mental health professionals in the community talking to them about what they do. So it wasn't just the women, it was also providers. There is a huge amount of stigma around mental health in India. And I'm beginning to realize that that stigma varies between groups Mm -hmm. and the group of people I work with, which is kind of middle-aged, mostly middle-class women faces some of the most intense stigma around mental health and mental health care seeking of any group. And I, that was something new that I learned this summer. I sort of assumed that stigma was stigma and that it would apply to everybody equally, but it doesn't. And I can talk about why that's the case if you guys want me to, but maybe that's a little off topic. No, I'm curious. That was my question. Okay. So one of the things that I did while I was here was I had a wonderful interview with two psychiatrists, both of whom had trained there in India, in, in Bangalore. So in the state of Karnataka, where I was working, but both of whom had done fellowships in London or maybe elsewhere in the UK. And so they had really interesting things to say about how mental health and mental health care provisioning looks different in the UK as opposed to in India. And what's also cool is that one of them is a juvenile psychiatrist who works with children and youth. And the other one is a gerontologist 
who works with the elderly. So they're able to talk about like the sort of differences between life course issues mm -hmm. as well. And both of them agreed that for their patient populations, so for the, you know, the gerontologist, it's mostly older people with dementia or other kinds of later life mental health issues. And also for the juvenile psychiatrist who is dealing mostly with kids who have learning differences or those kinds of things for the most part. There's very little stigma associated with their patient populations because the patients themselves, in one case children, in the other case elderly, are always being brought into the psychiatrist by other family members. So children are being brought by their parents. And in the case of elderly folks with memory or dementia issues, it's usually adult children who are bringing the parent in. So what that means is they've already got family buy-in, right? The family has already decided that they're happy to take a, or willing at least, to take the person who they think needs treatment to treatment. That does not happen with middle-class, middle-aged women, really at all, almost never. And so for a middle-class and middle-aged woman to seek out psychiatric care implies that she must be crazy. And for a woman to be seen even in the waiting room of a psychiatrist or psychologist or, or a counselor's office is so stigmatizing that if her family were to find out, she could be in big trouble. Even as like a you know, midlife adult, if she's unmarried, it might make it hard for her to get married, for example. So there's this equivalence that people make between mental health care providers and being really crazy because you know psychiatry is not terribly widespread in India. It's relatively speaking new. And so for the most part, it has been addressing only the most intense sort of forms of really debilitating mental illness, less of what we call the walking worried, right? Less of the sort of mild depression and things like that, and more of things like psychosis. So just a real quick clarification. So in the U.S., psychiatry is usually who hands out the meds, and psychology is who you go for talk therapy. Is it, are you talking about the same paradigm there? Or is everyone going to psychiatrists? Well, I'm talking about the same paradigm. But, you know, in the U.S., the biggest providers of mental health care are general physicians. And that's true in India, too. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, you know, for example, during my work in, in North India on diabetes, diabetologists and endocrinologists prescribed antidepressants all the time without mm. patients ever going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, just as part of, of sort of routine care for diabetes and seeing that women were distressed and that it was affecting their diabetes management. You could read more about that in my book. Self-promotion. <laughs> <laughs> done. Uh, so is the area you're working in, is it considered kind of a small enough area that everybody knows everybody and when something happens, everybody finds out? Mm. No. Well, the city itself where I work has isn't very large. It's close to a million people, which sounds like a lot for us. But in India, that's sort of like a, you know, comfortably mid-size-ish city. Mm -hmm. So it's big enough that not everyone knows each other. But that said, people have pretty intense social networks around caste and religion. So even though it's a bigger city by our standards, social connections are a little more proximate. But in any case, I should also say there are all kinds of mental health care provisioning or distress management provisioning that are not biomedical in, in India, right? So it's not that everyone is going to psychiatrists or psychologists. Lots of people go to faith healers or to a temple or to a guru or what, you know, there are lots of other ways of dealing with stress. And so I'm referring to the psychiatrists and psychologists because those were the ones I talked to on this trip. But there's right. lots, lots and lots of other sort of stress management stuff out there that I need to get into in future parts of this work. I was going to say, it sounds like these are the women who, just to relate from, from my own perspective in our culture, who have a functional role that they, they fill, right? Whereas the elderly or the young they sort of aren't depended upon to the same extent. So people are watching them and they're in some ways expected to be going through these types of things, but 
mental health issues really undermine the role and function of these women in this particular, not just jeopardize their, their marriage opportunities, but they're probably, I'm guessing, depended on to a great extent for roles within, I, I mean, our, just from reading the chapter I read in your book, I, I remember there are several expected roles these, these women are playing. Yeah, middle, middle-aged, middle-class women in North India or excuse me, in South India too, are what people often refer to as a sandwich generation because they are sandwiched between caring for their children and their husbands. So, you know, um, the vast majority of women in this demographic group are married and have children. And many of them also live in a joint family situation, which is becoming less common in India, but is still fairly common, which is where they, after marriage, move in with their husbands and their husband's parent. And part of their job during middle age is also to be taking care of those parents. So they're sandwiched between caring for an older generation and a younger generation at the same time. That's a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's a huge amount of responsibility. And it's also people talk a lot, especially in terms of discussing sources of stress in women's lives about how difficult it is to adjust to a new family and a new household after marriage. Yeah. And how that can work, but it can also be really, really hard, particularly because when women enter their husband's household, they're sort of under the direction. They're like a, an apprentice of their mothers-in-law, which just sets up a dynamic that can be really volatile yeah. and really, really stressful. And so they're sort of expected to learn the ropes of managing this household from their mothers-in-law, which it means that they're often subject to a fair amount of critique about the way they do things. And it can be really hard. So despite the fact that people recognize that that's a stressful time in women's lives and people recognize that this phase of life for women in India is one that's very involved in the care of others, if a woman develops any kind of mental health problem during that time, there's an assumption that there must be something fundamentally wrong with her. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are a lot of people watching what she's doing typically in this phase of life. So even if she wanted to seek out, say, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, she'd have to get permission probably. She'd have to ask for money. Mm. To go, um, she probably couldn't fly under the radar and just go by herself. Mm. Part of what I'm focused on is the language. So I have a with with my colleague Bonnie, who I mentioned earlier, Bonnie Kaiser, who's just about to start a new job at UC San Diego. She's a psychological anthropologist who works in Haiti. She and I are co-editing a special issue of the journal Transcultural Psychiatry right now about idioms of distress research, mm. which is fancy phrase for a really simple idea, as we often do in anthropology, the focus on the language that people use around stress in various parts of the world. So what sorts of idioms or words or expressions, verbal or nonverbal, do people use to talk about stress? And that's something that people have been looking at in psychological anthropology for only a few decades. Martin Nichter kind of kicked it off in the early 1980s, actually, with work in India. And what's cool about that line of inquiry is that Focusing really carefully on the ways that people express distress tells you a lot about how they cognitively think about and experience stress. And so that's kind of what I'm doing right now with these interviews. I'm getting them all translated and transcribed as we speak and paying really close attention to the language that women use around stress. And so there are all kinds of challenges associated with doing that in Canada. And in fact, I'm thinking about writing a paper about how to do this kind of work in a place where you don't speak the language. It can be done. Um, the analysis phase of this part of the work is really focused around language that women use to talk about stress. Next summer, I'm going back and I will be working with a larger sample of women. I'll be distilling sort of key phrases or keywords out of these interviews and then going back next summer and doing focus group discussions with a whole bunch of women about these phrases and trying to develop sort of locally derived definitions, if you will, for these concepts. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of an interesting way of backing into 
<laughs> cognitively oriented understanding of people's conceptions of distress. There are lots of other ways a person could do this, but mm -hmm. I get this way because I'm steeped in this idioms of distress research right now anyway. This sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear more about it as you kind of angle it all. It's going to be pretty neat. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit, shall okay. we? All right. What? So the other thing that I mentioned at the beginning that, that you do and that you're up to is when you were here, you started teaching Jim Binden's race class. And yes. about the same time that we started this podcast, you and Jim Binden and Eric Peterson started the Speaking of Race podcast. I'd love to hear how that's gone for you. I know that was an area of expertise that you, you took on and you often describe yourself as the foil, but I'm just really impressed with the podcast and I want to hear how it's been for you, what you've gotten out of it, what's been sort of the epiphanies of, of doing that podcast. Totally. So, you know, teaching, teaching on that topic and getting involved in this podcast were two of the most unexpected but most rewarding things that I have done since becoming a professor. And it all came about because I was teaching Introduction to Cultural Anthropology, which is a course that I absolutely love teaching. And the way I had it set up was that we spent a week on each sort of big topic, right? So like a week on religion and a week on gender and sexuality and a week on economic organization and a week on social stratification. And during that social stratification week, I wanted to talk, of course, about race and, and racial inequity because, heck, I was teaching at Alabama. And so I, I taught that course a whole bunch of times. And every time I taught it, I would add something to that part. And the first thing that I did was to add a tour of campus that was focused on African-American history stuff, heritage stuff. So civil rights stuff that went on on the campus in the 1960s and 70s, 60s. And then prior to that, slaveholding on campus. And I drew on other faculty members who have expertise for that. One of them is Dr. Hillary Green, who's a wonderful historian and professor in the Gender and Race Studies Department at Alabama. And the other one is Jason Black, who's no longer at Alabama, but was in the College of Communications. So I drew on those resources. And then at one point, uh, when I first came to Alabama, Jim Binden had been retired for four, four or five years, but was still teaching the department's course on race and human variation because no one else was teaching it. And I asked him to sit on, on my class during that week one year because I was beginning to, to get really interested in teaching about structural racism, but also about sort of the biological underpinnings of why race doesn't make sense as a form of classifying human difference. And that's pretty hard to do all that in one week in a cultural anthropology class where <laughs> students have had virtually no exposure to any of this stuff. And so I felt like I needed help. And Jim came in and was incredibly helpful, gave me a bunch of resources and lots of feedback. And when I saw how students reacted to that material, I just, it was inspiring to me. And Jim, it turned out, unbeknownst to me, had been hoping to pass off this class for a long time. And I took it up. I was like, yes, I'll do this. This is great. And so the course that I was teaching is, it's really a bioamp course that involves a fair amount of history as well and more and more sort of contemporary cultural stuff that I was adding into the course. But it's very much grounded in human evolution and genetics. So luckily I have a background in biology and I was able to relearn a fair amount of that stuff to teach it. So that wasn't too bad, but um, I had a lot of help from Jim. So that is probably the most fantastic course I have ever taught. It's life-changing for students and for me every time I teach it. So I'm going to be teaching it here at Oregon in the Department of International Studies. And so what it's going to involve is a little less human biology and a little more looking at how this question of sort of race and science has played out globally. And that's a fantastic segue into the podcast because that's what we've been doing lately on our podcast. 
So the podcast is, as you said, called Speaking of Race, and it's really focused on the history and present day implications of the development of racial science. And that's essentially the story of the development of anthropology as a discipline, right? Anthropology as a discipline was founded in the sort of quest for finding biologically based racial markers. Um, it's like our, our dirty underbelly. And so it's been being part of that podcast, which is really Eric and Jim's brainchild. Eric is a historian of science who's worked on this topic a lot. And of course, Jim is a human biologist who's an expert in human variation. Being part of that has really expanded my understanding of how anthropology came to be and also how science can serve and also really harm humanity at the same time. And so what I've added to that podcast, I guess you could say, is more of an international focus. So we've spent a lot of time in the podcast looking at how racial science developed in Western Europe and the Americas especially North America. But in the past couple months, we've been beginning to focus a little more on what's going on and what has gone on in other parts of the world. So while I was doing my field work in India this summer, we did a mini series on race and caste in India. And it's been so useful for my work. It's been so useful for me to learn about how the racial science that was being developed in Britain during the colonial period in India actually got sort of tested out in India on caste groups. And so race and caste have a really long and intertwined history that I really wouldn't have investigated to the same degree had I not been producing a couple podcasts on it. What's great about that is that that is going to feed directly back into my teaching in international studies. I can now make the race course that I've been teaching for a long time much more international in its focus. And we are also doing a little mini series right now in Brazil. Being part of that project has been incredibly rewarding in terms of my teaching and also in terms of my research and just in terms of collaboration. I love collaborating with those guys. I know to some extent Jim's perspective because I've heard him speak many times and because I inherited his job and he gave me all of his PowerPoint files. But the combination of the three of you works really, really nicely together. And it's gotten me listening to other podcasts that are going down that as well. I was just tweeting with Eric yesterday that code switch is going to be in Birmingham in a, yeah. like a week or so. We're kind of hoping to interview them. I'm not yeah. sure it's going to happen, but we're going to try. That's what I said. I said, you guys got to figure out a way to make this happen because some of the topics that, you know, come up in conversations about British colonialism, they do come right back to where we are now and how we frame everyday language of racism that creeps in. Those sorts of critique that you guys dig into there, I think, are really, really rich and compelling and are important to take into the classroom. So I plan to use some of those podcasts. I got to figure out a way to use those in my my classes this fall to keep you here at the University of Alabama in some way, shape, or form. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason we started it was in hopes that it would be a useful teaching tool. And we have heard from a fair number of people that they're using it or planning on using it in universities all over the place. So that's really exciting. We should probably make an announcement since um, the HBA just sent out an email about two important things. What did they send an announcement out about, Kara? One is that abstracts are due for our upcoming April conference. The abstracts are due on October 15th, and elections are coming up. There's a number of positions that are open, so if you know somebody who might be good at various positions in the HBA, you should nominate them. Right on. 
All right. Thank you for um, that. Gary, do you have uh, any more questions for Joe? No, but I want to thank you so much for getting up early, especially in the middle of your move, to come and talk with us today. You bet. It was awesome to talk to you guys. Joe, it's always a pleasure. Can you give us the URL of Speaking of Race? Oh, yeah, sure. You bet. It is speakingofrace.ua.edu. And also, do you have any social media yes. contacts for people to get in touch with you? Absolutely. Well, we have the Facebook page. So you can just Facebook search Speaking of Race. We have the webpage and we're on iTunes. What about you? Well, I haven't set up my new Oregon website yet, but I still have my Alabama website, which is ljweaver.people.ua.edu. And then the Department of International Studies, where I'm going to begin working this fall, is intldept.uoregon.edu. And I have been Chris. I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. On and, Twitter. and for me on Twitter, I'm at Kara Akbox, C-A-R-A-O-C-O-B-O-C-K. You've been listening to The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. This podcast is brought to you through support from the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. We hope that you enjoyed this author reading as we have a great lineup of researchers to fill out this month. As always, like us, share us, rate us, and let us know what you'd like to hear next.